0: You're listening to Food Trucks in Babylon, a Western Seminary podcast with Dr. Todd Miles and Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Listen as they discuss matters of faith, theology, and culture in a post-Christian world. Hey, this is Patrick.
1: And this is Todd.
0: And we are doing our first ever inaugural question and answer. Actually, we haven't even talked about what to call this. We should probably do some sort of play on um, food trucks, right? So like this is the smorgasbord or something like that. Do, <laughs> you, do you have a good idea for a name for this? I hadn't even thought about that.
1: Um, that that's a good point. Um,
0: well, if we think of something, okay. maybe we'll title it that okay. <laughs> after this. Yeah.
1: No, but I think, that's, I think that's a good start um with the uh, food trucks in babylon the the uh smorgasbord it's a it's a food truck pod episode right. podcast or something it's and this is a pod podcast
0: and this episode is late and coming we've been meaning actually to do this earlier but COVID hit and we've gotten some really good questions from people who have been listening but um it's been hard for us to record these last few months just with uh the, the new reality and so we're actually on zoom right now and we're recording um trying to stay distance from one another and we're not going to be able to get to all the questions that people sent in but we are going to get to hopefully quite a few. So uh, we've broken this down into kind of two different sections. We had a lot of questions on hermeneutics so I think we're going to spend the first half here on more hermeneutical questions and then the second half is on a grab bag. That's what we've called it because it's just a bunch of random questions and we're going to have Gary Bershear join us for the second half as well. So um, let's just jump into it, and our first question comes from Wes, who's in New England, and so here it is. I've been wanting to get your thoughts on canonical exegesis, canon criticism, canon consciousness, whatever you want to call it, but the canonical approach a la Child and Sailhammer. Uh I could see a bit of it in your book, Patrick, on the kingdom of God, and so I wanted to know how you guys would define it, and more importantly, what it looks like in exegesis and what role it
2: plays in the preachers' and the scholars' toolkit.
1: Okay, so the question is on canonical exegesis, and maybe some definition would be in order right off the bat. Um, There are a lot of different approaches to doing biblical theology, uh, and, and what I normally do at Western Seminary is we Approach it from a more redemptive historical standpoint. So it, it's it's uh, the chronology of events in redemptive history is more important. Uh, canonical exegesis um, has much overlap with that uh, idea, and the the issue here, though, m- more would be uh, the uh, total canon all of the books of the New Testament, Old Testament, and canonical order is also very, very important. And so rather than think primarily in terms of a chronological order of redemptive history, a canonical exegesis thinks more in terms of uh, how is this being presented to us in the completed canon. Uh, And, and, and I think it has uh, enormous import. Uh, You, the, the influence of a John Salehammer is, is very, very significant, uh, probably at least more locally, more so than, than, than a Brevard Child's, uh, in, in our neck of the woods, um, uh, because, uh, Salehammer taught at Western Seminary, had a huge influence on a number of the teachers in the area. And if you like the Bible project, uh, work that is heavily influenced by John Salehammer, um. Now, now, what what role should that play with a pastor? Well, I, I think it should play a, a very, very significant and really a controlling role because uh, the, the canon is really the... Uh, the largest area, if you will, or of 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 literary context, um, any any individual part in the Bible is going to find its meaning as determined uh, by, by its context. Of course, immediate context is going to take precedence, but but the canonical context has a controlling influence over. Uh, over how we understand any particular passage. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, furthermore, uh, we need to be thinking about uh, many, many human authors, but one divine author who is controlling this entire story, and and, and so uh, canonical exegesis. Uh, would uh, include such things as intertextuality, uh, the, the kind of things that, that, that when you bring up how, how one portion of scripture relates to another portion of scripture by divine intent, uh, boy, my experience in teaching and preaching is
0: that everybody's eyes light up. That's right. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, I, I think the divine author is a big part of that, just that we do have this story that it seems like even the biblical authors, whether they're living in the same time or they're not, they're continuing a the story that is started in Genesis and comes to completion at Revelation. It's very clear in Revelation that you have um, the author alluding at the end there to the beginning of Genesis. So kind of completing that story in some sense. So how do we define canonical exegesis? I think Todd has done a good job, but One of the ways I like to say it as well is the Bible has been deliberately shaped and edited in a way that informs interpretation. And so there's a deliberate way of uh, forming this literature that informs how we interpret. So you have actually internal evidence that these authors are referring to one another. So 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's letters as scripture. We have 1 Timothy 5.18. Um, where Paul cites a saying of Jesus' scripture. So they're referring back and forth to these different parts of the scripture. Uh, and so you you have some just very clear evidence that there is some sort of canonical consciousness in the minds of these authors. You also have Jesus in Luke 24, speaking speaking about the fulfillment from the law, the prophets and the Psalms. And there's kind of the three-part division of the Old Testament. Now, it does... One of my friends, actually, his name is Ched Spellman. He has a more academic work on kind of canonical consciousness, and he has these terms that I like uh, that he uses. It's called "mere" and "meant" canonical consciousness. So "mere" is more the effect that arises in the mind of the reader as you put things together, and then "meant" is what the biblical authors meant in terms of their own canonical consciousness. So I find those helpful. Um, And just to kind of add what what Todd said. As we read the scripture as a unity, I think this is hugely important for preaching and teaching um, because we are trying to train people to understand that this is not just one-off letters. These aren't just one-off books. These are things that are continuing uh, a story that has started in Genesis and continues through Jesus's life and goes on into the eschaton. So I, I would say, and and Todd, we can dialogue more about this if you have other comments about it as well, but... I would say we we need to be careful in terms of ordering that there was one specific ordering of everything. So you have in the early church, them ordering the New Testament differently. You have Old Testament evidence, uh, even early church fathers who ordered the Old Testament differently. And so where we place exactly certain books, I think we need to have some humility in terms of, well, this is the way it has to go. Chronicles needs to go last or whatever it is, or... That's right um, this
1: is the bible that Jesus read.
0: That that's right. We just need to be I think more humble because the external evidence is actually varied for how exactly the ordering is. So while I think we can actually see like internally why they put Certain books in certain places, uh, and we can make some arguments for that. We also n- need to not probably say this is the only way to read it. Uh, even the way they order the gospels, there's different ways of ordering the gospels in terms of we have one way that we followed, but there's other ways, and and even um, in in many traditions, you have the Catholic epistles coming before or the general epistles coming before the Pauline epistles. And so, I, I think just being open to recognizing there are different ways that people have ordered these things. So. I, I do use canonical interpretation a lot in, in terms of how I see the scriptures, uh, because I do see some of that consciousness in the, in the author's minds as, as they're reading as well from the scriptures. So, Todd, you want to add anything else to that one?
1: Yeah, just to, to piggyback on what you were saying, uh, you know, w- when I teach biblical theology, I tend, as I said, to think more in terms of a, of a redemptive historical uh, approach uh, to ordering that, that's, that's more through time. Um, and, and the reasons reasons are, I, I think you outlined, um, we, we, we are not exactly sure uh, what the canonical order is. And, and also, um, to think about a canonical order in many ways is, is to uh, engage in a bit of perhaps uh, um, anachronistic re- uh, reasoning. Yeah. Uh, because when you have just a collection of scrolls, what does it mean to have a canonical order? Uh, we thought more and more, uh, frankly, we thought more and more about a canon um, but, but certainly more and more about a canonical order when we had a, uh, a, a codex yeah. where we could like bind books together, then what order those were in became more and more important. But, but that's later in church
0: history. It's certainly not what was going on with, with Jesus. Right. right. And, and to add to that, you, you can have conceptual unity though, without physical unity. I think that's pretty clear. Even with the Torah, you'd have different scrolls, but there's still conceptual unity there, but certainly sure. in terms of the, the physical nature of that unity, we didn't, uh, we didn't have that until the Codex in the same way. But there, there seems to be some evidence of conceptual unity even before uh, the Codex came along. Oh, so. for sure. for sure. Okay, well, should we go to the next question? We're going to run out of time if we just keep going on. You know, we, we could talk for hours on some of these things. So our next question, come, it's about inspiration. It comes from Ryan Woods, who's in Vancouver, Washington, in our neck of the woods here. So here's Ryan's question. Hey guys, quick question regarding
1: inspiration. I've heard you mention a couple of times that the biblical authors were inspired and was just wondering if it would be more technically correct to say that the scriptures themselves were inspired as opposed to the authors being inspired. Just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Thanks so much. Uh, and I I suppose the answer to that is yes. It, it is more technically accurate to to speak of the scriptures being inspired. Did uh,
0: you just admit that we made a mistake on the podcast? Uh, huh? no, not really. No, I'm <laughs> gonna take, I'm, I'm, yeah. Okay. So the the
1: biblical attestation, self attestation, is is that the scriptures are the word of God, and and all scripture is God breathed, and and from passages like that we get. Uh, our doctrine of inspiration, and and so yes, uh, any church doctrinal statement probably should say uh, that that we believe that, that the scriptures are inspired. Um, we we do though have evidence of of the spirit of the Lord coming upon prophets and and motivating them to speak. And uh, it's it's it, given how the scriptures came to us. I I think it is difficult to conceive of the scriptures being inspired without the biblical authors themselves, not being uh, moved by the Holy spirit. I think that's what second Peter says, right. And, uh, and, and, and I do think that we need to be careful uh, when we make too broad a distinction. And now there's probably reasons to make the distinction uh, certainly, but, but, but we need to be careful because if we consider the scriptures to be inspired, but the human authors, uh, Perhaps not. Then, what we might end up with is is that the the, the scriptures uh, then become inspired as the Holy Spirit moves upon them, or or to to borrow from uh, Stanley Grins, as the Spirit breathes life into them. Perhaps even when you're reading, and uh, mm-hmm. how how the scriptures came to us is that men were moved by the Holy Spirit, prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit to to write uh, what what is the very word of God. And uh, it, it is important for us to to remember that that there is a human element to the scriptures in terms of inspiration mm-hmm. and, and, and that human element must not be denied. Otherwise, all rules
0: of interpretation just go out the window. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question about that since I'm here and I can ask questions live? Yeah, go for it. So uh, in terms of the authors, we're you know, were they always inspired or were they just inspired when they wrote these scriptures? So like, how do we think through that in terms of prophets and the Apostle Paul? Was there a unique inspiration that came to them as they were writing letters, as they were writing down covenant documents, or were all, all of their words inspired in a unique sense? How do you think? Yeah. That? Uh, well, I would say, no, not not everything a prophet ever said was
1: prophetic. It's only when they were speaking prophetically that it was prophetic. And, and, and so the, the, the t- you know, I suppose that, that the church has determined that that these uh books that are part of the canon are those that that, that we are confident uh were written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um cer- certainly not everything that Paul ever uttered was was inspired, though.
0: Right. That's helpful. That's good. I don't really have anything else to add to that one. So
1: We have a written question, uh, this uh, from Alex Mock, a Western grad, who, if I'm not mistaken, is up like in Montana or or someplace like that. Uh, He asks, where do you both stand on the relationship between and nature of Israel and the church? Pastorally, how would you lead a congregation that is split almost 50-50 on this topic? Is it a critical enough topic to have a stating position, et cetera? okay well uh, coming coming soon uh we are going to have a, a podcast interview with Gavin ortland uh, who wrote a book on theological triage uh, and uh, the the practice that uh, that I use here at Western Seminary that I borrowed from Gary Bashirs, who will be joining us here shortly is uh not all doctrines are of equal importance. There are some that are worth dying for, some that are worth dividing over, some that are worth debating for, and some that are worth, uh, who cares, you just decide. Uh, So so those four Ds, die for, debate, or divide for, debate for, decide for. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this one is a debate for issue. Patrick, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. I I mean, in terms of, I think it's uh, you need to teach, obviously, what you think the scriptures are saying, but you can have humility as you you speak through some of these things and say, I recognize there's different views on these, and good Christians can disagree on this. So I think we can debate these things. We can have good discussions about them. And so if you have a church where this is an issue that is going to cause a lot of heartache or emotions, then I would just tread around it carefully and not speak too strongly on either side. Maybe if you come to a text where you think it's worth addressing, uh, th- then give arguments on both sides and, and, and maybe say, this is where I lean. Maybe you don't say that. I, I don't know. It depends kind of on your situation, how long you've been there, how much trust you've built up. In terms of our view, uh, I, I can just briefly give you my view and maybe Todd wants to give his view as well and he can disagree with me if he wants to, but that would be a bad idea because then we just argue the rest of this podcast Um, I don't think we want to collapse Israel and the church, but we also don't want to separate the two so much that they're two separate peoples with two distinct plans for each of them. So I I kind of reject both extreme poles of completely collapsing them or completely um, separating them. So what I like to put it through is the grid of continuity and discontinuity. There's certainly continuity between Israel and the church and that they're both the people of God. They're both described according to first Peter two, nine and 10 as a Royal priesthood, a Holy nation, a new temple. They're both under covenants, although they are separate covenants. And so when I read the new Testament, it seems like the church is actually given the language of the old Testament of the new people of God. And that's, that, that's pointing towards continuity towards me. How, however, however, there's also discontinuity. They're under different covenants. There's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. Uh, There's a national and ethnic and geographical sense to Israel that's not there with the church. And so there's certainly discontinuity there. Uh, Brent Parker has a great chapter in progressive covenantalism, this book, where he says we have to bring it through Jesus first, as Jesus is the new Israel. So you can't speak about, and I, I like this kind of way of framing it. You can't speak about Israel and the church without bringing it through Jesus. And if Jesus is the new Israel, and then we're connected to Jesus, then there is is some new continuity between us and Israel, because we are connected to the new Israel, who is Jesus himself. So we first have to address that relationship between Israel and Israel's Messiah, and then between Christ and the church. So in that sense I do think the church is the new restored Israel through Christ and they are as they're connected to her, but there's still some discontinuity there as well. Todd, do you want to add anything to that?
1: Uh, just, just a few things. No, no, no major corrections. So, so, so no major arguments to come here. Uh, it, so. The, okay. You have them. it's all right. No, nah, it's the, the, the church is, is, is of course constituted by the new covenant and the new covenant of course was formally given and predicted for Israel and, and the church or Gentiles are, are grafted into this thing. Uh, so I, I do think that, that we need to remember that. Um, it, is there going to be a future, uh, for ethnic national Israel? Uh, yeah, I, I I think that there will be. Um, I, I think that, uh, that forever and ever throughout the ages in the new heavens and the new earth, we we will look at Jewish people and say, wow, God was faithful to his promise. Look, and wow, isn't it amazing that Gentiles like us got grafted into this thing, uh, that, that is so miraculous and wonderful. Um, uh, so what about uh, national Israel and, and its role in eschatology, which is probably where a lot of the heat from this uh, debate comes. Um, I, I've never been one who wants to draw a map and say in the new heavens and new earth, these are going to be the boundaries of Israel because when Jesus Christ returns, he is going to reign as the Davidic heir. He, he will reign as the Davidic heir over the cosmos, <laughs> over the cosmos, um, uh, will he plant his capital city, if you will, in in uh, Jerusalem? Uh, however, that's uh, reconstituted a, a new Jerusalem. Whatever, uh, sure, th- that would make perfect sense to me. W- why not? I mean, I think that would just be a a, a great facial that, that the Lord. Not at the White him. House, Todd. Uh, no, no, yes, since like I said, there would just be a great faithful to to all the the world's principalities uh that Jesus takes up shop there, uh, but I do like to say that that if that is the case the Lord Jesus will spend his summers in the Pacific Northwest, where it is much more much more pretty.
0: And, or Kansas City. No, I'm uh, yeah, I'm
1: not <laughs> sure about that one. but
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that even where Christ reigns from and then the land issue, I would just, again, put on good Christians can disagree on that. Um, it, it That is a tough issue in terms of what, I mean, that, that gets into eschatology. What is it exactly going to look like uh, when whether you believe in a millennial age or the new heavens and new earth, what is that going to look like? Well, we've got a lot of questions about that, even in terms of like what our bodies will look like and how that will um, go. And so I do, I do think that's an issue where we can disagree on. So, yeah.
1: and and so because of that, I'm not sure that this is first and foremost, a hermeneutical issue as it manifests itself in the church. Uh, it's probably going to be more of a pastoral issue. How do you navigate this? Because, because chances are if, if, if you're my age or older, and you grew up in, in community churches, Baptist churches, that sort of thing, which were perhaps a little more dispensational, uh, that this question becomes a litmus test for biblical fidelity. And, and, and now, I don't think that's actually the case. I, I think uh, Bible-believing Christians can disagree on this issue, and it need not split a church, but it's going to take a, a, a deft pastoral touch uh, to navigate through that.
0: Good. Okay, we're going to go on to the next question, just so we can get to more of them. Our final question in this first half here is from Andrew Scalisi, and uh, we don't know where you're from because it doesn't say this, but uh, his question is about God's uh, immutability, and this is what he asks. He says, if God is immutable and Jesus is God, then is Jesus immutable? Uh, if Jesus is immutable, how should we understand his humanity, the Incarnation? So Hebrews 2.17, he became like us in every respect. Philippians 3.20-21, 20 Jesus is currently existing in his glorified body. If Jesus did not exist as a man before the Incarnation, but now exists as the God-man, how do we reconcile this tension regarding his immutability? So, Todd, I'm going to throw it over to you, and then I'll add some things.
1: Sure. This is taking a deeper dive into Christology, but it's super important. So the, the first thing that I would say is uh, it's technically not accurate to talk about Jesus before the incarnation. Uh, we, we can talk about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation, who then takes on a human nature, adds a human nature to his divine nature, and is born as a human in Bethlehem and given the name Jesus. Jesus is the name of the God man. Uh, so I think that's important. Um, it, if God is immutable and Jesus is God, then is Jesus immutable? Uh, well, in his divine nature, in his divine nature, uh, we, we, we know that Jesus as a human in his human nature a, a embodied as a person, uh, was a baby, uh, grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. Um, and so, uh, in his in his human nature, no, not not immutable in in that regard. We have to account for that. But certainly, in the divine nature is absolutely is absolutely immutable. Um, uh, at, at at the Council of Chalcedon, this was uh, thought through. Uh, we were given a definition of what's called the hypostatic union, the two unions of one nature. I'm sorry, the, the, two, the two natures unified in one person, two natures unified in one person. Um, and, and the language is that these natures are, are united in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation. Those four, confusion, change, division, separation. The lack of those is called the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, and, and it really helps us think through uh, how, the, how God can be Im- immutable and yet uh, take on human flesh, adds to himself. I, I would also add, before Patrick chimes in here, that whatever our doctrine of the immutability of God is, it, it does have to account for the incarnation. Hmm. Um, so anyway, Patrick. What,
0: what yeah, I mean, just going to some texts, uh, this comes from James one seventeen. there's no shift or variation, shadow of change in God, uh, the doctrine of immutability, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And historically, this doctrine has also come, if you're looking back to um, people like Aquinas, um, that a perfect being must be immutable. If he were to change for the better, that means he would be less than perfect before. And so that's kind of where we're basing this doctrine on. Uh, The text I like to go to uh, that gives people some troubles is Philippians 2.7 where it speaks about Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, Uh, is that some sort of change? Well, Augustine said Christ emptying himself did not mean he lost what he was, but he took on something to him that he was not. In other words, he took on human flesh. So his essence stays the same, which I think that's what Todd has been saying the whole time. Mm -hmm. His essence stays the same, but he takes on human flesh. And as Todd said, that must fit into our doctrine of, immutability. And, and in terms of the question about Jesus existing now, I think we do, we must affirm actually that Jesus exists in his glorified body now. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he exists in his glorified state now. To take away his body now would then be to deny the importance of the incarnation. He, he is always now the God-man from here on forever going forward. And I think that's very important to affirm sometimes in class, I like to say, where is Jesus and what is he doing now? And what does he look like? And students just start to kind of tease that out in their own mind. He's, he's, he's in his glorified state reigning at the right hand of the father. And so yes, he's still existing in that state and will come back and consummate the kingdom. So Todd, anything else to add to that?
1: Yeah, this sounds like a good time for a commercial. Uh, you just talked about the ascension. And I think you have a book coming out on the ascension and the, the, the implications of the ongoing incarnation. That's right. And then all
0: all of our seven listeners should buy it.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and then if you wanted to, to, to look at a more extended, uh, discussion of, of the hypostatic union, then, then you could pick up that, that book that I wrote on, on the person of Christ. That's right. Um, That's
0: right. Well, we're going to take a little break now and we're going to come back and do a little bit more of a grab bag type session for these question and answer this smorgasbord of food trucks, where we pick different questions and answer them. And and Gary Bershears is going to join us for the second half.
1: My name's Aram, and I'm in the MABTS program at Western Seminary. My favorite part about this program is that I get to study and reflect on God's Word at an academic level, and I also get to learn around some amazing people. The students and faculty here have helped me grow in the way I understand God and His Word, and I also get to do it in an environment that pushes and challenges me both personally and academically. Western Seminary offers a number of programs to help students prepare for the work God has called
0: them to through rigorous education designed with practical application. If you're interested in learning more about Western or starting your application, visit us online at westernseminary.edu. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back. We're in the grab bag section here and Gary Brashears is joining us for some of these. So we're just gonna go through these things. Our first question comes from Tanner Aldridge from Mississippi and he has a fun question to think about. Um, He asks, what is the craziest topic for a book you genuinely want to write? So Todd, tell me about the craziest book you want to write besides um, superheroes and (laughs) anthology.
1: Yeah, probably something sports related would be good also. Um I, I actually just signed a contract to write a book on Christianity and and marijuana or the you know the church and and marijuana. M- maybe that I'm I'm sure that just sounds silly to people but are the pages yeah. going
0: to be made out of marijuana leaves? Uh, yeah,
1: hemp hemp, yes. Yes. Uh <laughs> great yeah. with a um, free vial
2: of
0: CBD oil to go with it. That's, <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, so that's
0: the do you have any other crazy ideas or is that uh,
1: not not at the moment. It honestly it seems to me whenever I think about a proposal it just seems crazy that anybody would would pay me to write a book.
0: So. <laughs> I don't think that's That's right. I think more people should pay you to write books. So okay, so I don't really have crazy I don't know if these are crazy topics, but two topics that I thought of doing. What about
1: that Christian romance novel you were telling (laughs) about the other day?
0: (laughs) Well, we weren't supposed to share about that. Is that between Uh, Jesus
1: Jesus and Mary or somebody like that? I'm sorry. That's not even the craziest one. Never mind. Okay. I'm just going to your craziest one. Book
0: book sales. Like, yeah, two Jesus was married to and so forth. So, so two books that I've thought about doing. Uh, Number one, a book kind of on, I don't know what the title would be, like Biblical Theology Gone Bad, just because biblical theology is so popular, but it's actually difficult to do because sometimes you just take the themes that you want to see and squash everything else. And so I thought it might be kind of fun to do a book kind of saying, how can biblical theology go wrong and give some examples. Um, The other book that actually I had a proposal for at one point, but we we decided not to do it is I I did a lot of work on kind of spatial and place theories in my dissertation and my PhD work. And I thought about doing, we thought about doing a book on the importance of space and church architecture at one point. So that would be kind of a fun book to do, but I don't know if I'll ever get to it. Um, I would be just be arguing. We need to go back to all the beautiful churches instead of our warehouse churches. So. uh, That'd be a
1: fun one to research though. You could take a tour of Europe and.
0: That's right. I'm sure someone would pay for that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those are the craziest topics. Well, Gary, do you have anything to add to that in terms of crazy topics?
2: Well, I'm actually. Working with an editor on my Calmanian theology. Really, finally, that you've heard it here
0: first on food trucks in Babylon. Oh, fantastic, good. <laughs> That's great. All right, Todd, you want to bring us into the next question?
1: Yeah. So our 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 first really our our second I suppose grab bag question comes from Andrew Short in London, and I won't I won't use my Cockney bad British accent, uh, but it is spelled in in like he, he's from England. Uh, broadly speaking, my question is for someone who holds to a biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage, how should you relate or socialize with homosexual colleagues, friends, neighbors, et cetera, in a way that's faithful to biblical teaching, but also demonstrating love for our neighbors? And, and, and really, you know, so sh- should I go to the wedding uh, is, is a, a question that, that works its way into this. Patrick, do you want to start?
0: No, I don't know if I want to start on this one. I think that's a, it's a really tough uh, question to answer. I think a lot of it comes down to your relationship with the person uh, in terms of the situation. And so what is the situation that you find yourself in? Uh, Do you feel like if you didn't go to that wedding that you'd no longer have a bridge to share the gospel with them? Or would that be actually something that gives them more clarity in terms of where you stand on that issue. And so I, I, I do think it depends on the relationship you have at that time, and maybe even previous conversations that you had, you've had with um, this person. And so uh, I, I would say you would wanna examine, which it sounds like Andrew's doing this, but intentions. So if you're embarrassed about your views, if you're embarrassed about what God teaches, I think that's a significant issue. Um, But if you're seeking to love the person and to show them the love of Jesus and you come down on different, I think Christians actually, as this continues to be an issue, are going to come down on different um, conclusions on this. But uh, keeping that idea of loving God and loving others, this this is the classic, right? How do we love God and love others in the midst of this? Are we forsaking the love of God by doing something like this? and highlighting the love of others. How do these two things come together? And I'm talking around the issue because I've struggled with this issue myself in terms of what exactly I would do. And it it does come down to me uh, in in terms of the relationship that I have and what sort of relationship that is. I'm I'm more hesitant to give a pat answer like yes or no, you should always or never do this because I think it's more situational than that. So that's kind of my cop-out answer.
2: I come out as I look at the Luke 5.32 passage where Jesus is eating with tax gatherers and sinners, which would be the contemporary equivalent of uh, homosexual folk, and they were the bad guys, and he eats with them and is called task on that, and he says, I've come not to righteous, but for the sinners, but he also says, I call them to repentance. So my thing is, I want to love and serve people, but in the name of Jesus, and I don't want to pick out just homosexuals, which tends to be the case in a lot of these things. I eat with sinners a lot, even some of the ones that are at the seminary. <laughs> He's
0: referring to Todd there, not yeah, me. Uh, yeah, Eric actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Todd, you want to add some?
1: Yeah. So 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 I'll be the voice of uh, of like uh, conservatism here just a bit. Um,
0: We've got the three polls. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Gary knows. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So um.
1: I think it's, so in, in general, I, I probably wouldn't go to the, the wedding, although I would say this, that, that I would be more likely to go to it uh, the less of a relationship that I had with the individual. Because the, the, the closer I am to the individual, uh, the more that they would know my convictions. Um, and and, and if so, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll just leave it at that. I, I also uh, wonder uh, to- you
0: say why though, Todd? What's that? Why well, would you it just it, because if
1: I have a a close relationship with someone, hopefully they understand uh, uh, who I am, uh, where I'm at, what my convictions are, uh, what I think the Bible says uh, about uh, this issue, and uh, what at some point, it, depending on how close we are, they're really asking me to to compromise uh, on on my convictions knowingly to do that. Hopefully by this time I've I've built up a, a relationship of 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 trust and uh, and and you know, friendship. Um, so, uh, you know, because it also
0: I, because it's, you think it's like a celebration to like your theology of going to a wedding or is that not a part of that?
1: Well, I think that when you go to a wedding, what you're doing is, is you're celebrating something with an individual. And, and, and I know that, uh, maybe we don't use the language of, of witness anymore, but I do think that that's kind of what's going on. You're there witnessing this thing that I don't think is actually a, a wedding. Um, uh, once a person is is married you know th- then i would uh want to treat that those two as 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 friends and um and if a you know they would be welcome in my house um but you know for 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 socializing for for friendship for for all the things that that, that we normally do as as friends
0: that's good. Well, we're going to go into the next question. These are all um, difficult, and so we're just going to move right on. Todd and Patrick, how do you guys intend on schooling your children? Do you homeschool, private school, Christian school, public school, or whatever? What do you think about the topic? I'd love to hear more. I think, again, it's very situational. I think it's based on your family. I think it's based on where you live. I think it's based on your. Um, children and their attitudes about things and where they are in terms of maturity. I think it's based on your family dynamic, whether your wife or the husband feels called to do homeschooling and so forth and so on. So all those factors need to play in. I, I go against, um, I guess I would say I, I am more hesitant of very strong opinions on this. And so if you think everyone needs to homeschool or everyone needs to go to public school or everyone needs to go to private school, whatever it is, I I think that is is just not respecting the situation of each family and where they are in their own personal journey and so forth and so on, even where they're living. And, And there is some theology that comes in here. I do think you could give arguments theologically for public school and arguments, theologically for homeschool, but that's where I think it's more situational. So just in terms of theological considerations, um, pe- young children are, are very affected by who they're around. And so that should come in, that should factor in as we think about schools. But we also want to be careful on the other side to not have a theology that thinks that sin only comes from the outside. Um, and so we, we believe that sin comes from the inside as well. So sometimes I, I think I hear from maybe a little bit more of the homeschooling crowd that um, y- you uh, want to homeschool them because that will protect them. But our theology says that uh, sin also comes from the flesh as well. And so if you protect them from things, that doesn't mean sin won't crop up in their own heart. Now I'm not saying everyone's saying that, but I, I do think we need to have a good uh, theology kind of informing what we're doing with schooling. I-, I experience homeschooling, private schooling, and public schooling. So I had a good experience of all of them growing up.
1: Todd, what do you think? Yeah so so we've done all three of those with with our own children um i i guess the only thing i i would add a couple of things this one um pastorally uh for a person in my congregation who's wrestling with this issue all i would want from them is that they be intentional with their kids uh to be intentional um and and you have to think through what is best for that child um uh, second uh so here's a reason it, this just kind of off the cuff, but, but a a reason for sending your kids to public school that I just roll my eyes at and and it has to do with, with evangelism, right? I I want to send my kids to public school. So, you know, for, for for the sake of evangelism one, we don't even know that your kids are, are, are Christians. Uh, you know, maybe your first grader is, I, I don't know. I, I was never sure with my own first graders. Um, too if it's for your personal evangelism with teachers why are you using your kids as guinea pigs to to you know or as a conveyance device for, for you amen, brother that? amen yeah I, I mean, you can get
0: to know other people through your kids no. well,
1: yeah i i mean so so make the choice that's best for your kids not what is best for you and and certainly don't be pious about it by by trying to baptize it by saying hey this is what's best for for, yeah. for personal
0: evangelism i think it's good also i've i've know a lot of churches um, who it seems like everyone in the church does one of these schooling options, you want to have diversity hopefully in your church so that people can come to your church and feel comfortable in any of these situations. So I, I would just encourage up front being very light on this topic if addressing it at all.
2: One thing I'd like to throw in here and just echo what Todd is saying, parents must, 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 must be involved in the education of their children. We can't have an ed- educational work for Christian school or public school. But on the other side, if you're homeschooling, you have to be a teacher. And I've seen parents who do it because they want to protect their kids, but they're, they're lousy teachers. If you're going to, if you're going to homeschool your kid, like step up and do it. And I can tell you, it's not easy. I've taught in public schools and private schools. It takes some real discipline to do it. So if you're going to do it, do it well. I'm echoing what Todd's saying a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. And yeah, count the cost. Because it's hard and it costs money. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it, yeah. Moms, dual role to a mom who usually ends up being the teacher, that dual role is hard to deal with. It is a cost. It is. Yeah.
0: Todd, do you want to get us into the next question?
1: Yeah. So a question from Mike Carpenter in Newport, Virginia. A question about the episode on the Mosaic of the Atonement. Uh, he wants to know how this, this integrated approach and in the Mosaic of the Atonement, it was, it was speaking of the different models of the atonement, the biblical models we see and how those integrate nicely together, uh, recapitulation, uh, penal substitution, Christus Victor, and then uh, moral influence, how they integrate together. And, and his, his question was, it seems to him that penal substitution is critical to definite atonement and moral influence or government theory is critical to general atonement. Uh, to it an unlimited atonement, I suppose um, and so wh- what how, how do you sort through the implications of that? Uh, so I would just say this to to begin with that um, that penal substitution is is crucial to both limited atonement and unlimited atonement and it's also crucial to the governmental theory of the atonement as articulated first i suppose by by a grotius and, and, and an early armenian scholar um, it's it, it's crucial to the government theory as well the only difference is 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 that penal substitution is is a little more on the ad hoc side it's it's uh that 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 Christ died for sins and that's sufficient to pay for sins because God says so. Uh, God has the right to dictate what, uh, what penalty is sufficient because he is the, the governor as it were. But I I think, I I don't think that one goes with the other. I I don't think that penal substitution is, is limited to a limited atonement idea um, or a, or, or, or uh, the, the moral influence or government theory is, is vital to a, a,
2: an unlimited atonement.
0: I've got nothing to add on that. Gary, do you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I don't hold to definite atonement, but you could hold this uh, mosaic of atonement and still come out to definite atonement. Hmm. There's nothing that would keep you from it, because if you're saying that Jesus triumphed over Satan, I hope you're going to say that no matter where you come out on that. One of my frustrations is people that only do substitutionary atonement, which is vital, of course, but he, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, First John 3, 8. We need that side in there too, but you could have definite atonement with a mosaic. Yeah. Good.
0: Okay, so our next question is an audio question from Josh in Coquille, is that how you pronounce it? Coquille, Oregon? Coquille, down on the south coast. Right. All right, Josh, let's hear your question.
1: Hello, my name is Josh and I'm a youth pastor in Coos County, Oregon. Recently, I had an encounter with a junior high student who said that they talk to the dead all the time and didn't understand why that would be looked at negatively. How do you go about discussing the concept of necromancy to a student ingrained in a culture that is open to it? She is also ingrained in the church. So how would this tie into spiritual warfare as well? Thanks for all that you guys do. Well, Coquille, Oregon is in my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Myrtle Point. Um, it, it's almost not surprising that, that this would happen in Coquille because their school mascot <laughs> is the red devils. Um, and and I, we'll just emphasize the devil part of that and, 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 and not the clearly racist <laughs> aspect of that. Um, talking to the dead, that just seems weird to me. That's my informed theological opinion of it. Gary, do you want to take necromancy? I, I do things and then
0: Gary, give us the re-answer. Yeah. But you do have some texts that speak of um, you, that you can't do this. You, you shouldn't be speaking to the dead. Deuteronomy, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 18. Yeah. And then you have the story of um, Saul and Samuel when he, Saul calls up Samuel from the dead and he's condemned and for that. And so we do have some texts that speak to that. So that was what first came into my mind, just in terms of biblical texts we can go to. But Gary, do you want to add anything on that?
2: Well, that's crucial. The Bible says, don't do it. I mean, that's not a minor point Or you could to say, Todd, I just could say, isn't that story of Saul
1: and Samuel funny? Because, because the medium is like shocked when Samuel actually appears and it's like, why did you think you wouldn't be able to do this? I thought you were getting paid to do such things. And yet she's surprised when, when, when Samuel walks out
2: from the dead. I, I, was, I think she's surprised that Samuel, that he would come. But anyway, yeah, it's, the irony, of course, is Saul has condemned all necromancy and then goes to a witch to talk to Samuel, yeah. which is crazy. I but think Galatians, of- Galatians 5 is another place where it talks about the witchcraft and that sort of stuff, so it's not just an Old Testament thing.
0: That's true. Yeah. yeah. The
2: theological issue is why would you talk to somebody who's dead? If we understand the Scripture correctly, uh, you don't have dead people walking around like in Christmas Carol. Dead people go to another place hades we look at the rich man and Lazarus story that he wants somebody to go back and tell his brothers so the brothers are not listening to him so if you're if dead people are not accessible which I think the bible says then if you're talking to somebody you're talking to a spirit you're talking to a demon not to your actual brother-in-law or whoever you want to talk to to me that's a real concern is how do you People say, well, my, it was only my brother was with me in that particular incident. No, actually, there are lots of demons around listening in on your conversation. You just didn't see them.
0: Hmm. So do you think Samuel was a demon?
2: No, Samuel, Samuel is a real person. Just like Moses and Elijah coming back to talk to Jesus. Okay, there are some cases where God sends somebody back for a specific purpose, but that's not us calling them up. I think the witch was actually, like Todd says, shocked. Oh, my gosh, what is this?
0: So in terms of, I, this is a weird question, but we're into, into, we're into weird. crazy territory here anyways. <laughs> so can, is there a real sense in which people can speak to the dead, like call them up from the realm of Hades and Sheol, and you can do that, but it's condemned. You should, you should not do that. Like, does that make sense? So in our non-spiritualized worldview, I think people would be like, no, this isn't even possible. But it seems like there's, if they're commanding them not to do it, that there's a possibility of doing it. Yeah.
2: I think there is the possibility of doing that, as you say, if it 's commanded not to do it, then they 're doing something, and when you get into the dark realm, all kinds of crazy stuff happens, but we just our our goal is to connect with God and present people and and I think it says don 't do the necromancy very specifically and repeatedly it 's not just a one time thing
0: so for josh who uh, has someone in his youth group who 's speaking about this pastorally, would you have them? him go to these texts and talk through it and that way how would you pastorally work through this
2: i do two things one i why is he doing it and what's he getting from it uh i find a lot of youth group people are doing crazy things because they want to do crazy things and they're not aware of the dangers of the crazy things they're doing and then i'd want to help him think through well what does the bible say and what's your authority what's your relationship to the bible's authority and you're probably going to find the Bible isn't much of an authority in his life. So now we need to work on that. Uh, and then beyond that is Jesus' pattern for our life. And the only case he talked to somebody who's dead is specifically because God brought that person up. It's not because he called the person up. Mm,
0: okay. Okay, so our final question then is from Benjamin Eady, I think is how you pronounce it. He's a Canadian who moved to Indonesia, and his question is based around spiritual slash demon attachment to objects or locations. So he tells of them having a firsthand experience with this regarding their first home. And then when they move to Indonesia, they've also heard of Christians whom they very respect talk of having discernment regarding objects you bring into your home in terms of not knowing where those objects have been and some sort of spiritual ritual kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 a little mm-hmm. bit there. Yep. Um, so he basically is just wondering, how do we think through that? How do we deal with objects and demon attachment uh, to objects or locations. So I'm going to pitch this one over to Gary and, and see what you think about this one.
2: Well, you've got the right text, First Corinthians 8 and 10, talking about meat uh, offered to idols uh, in sacrifice to demon gods and then sold in the local of uh, Fred Meyer or equivalent. And Paul says, don't worry about it. Receive it with thanksgiving and you're good to go. So, he's not worrying about a demon being attached to meat that's specifically been offered to idols. On the other hand, in Acts 19, people that are using objects for sorcery, they destroy them. So, when something's involved, particularly in religious ritual type things, then I think we should leave it alone. We should never be involved in worship of demonic gods, spiritual darkness. Uh, but art, art, objects, and that kind of stuff, I follow the meat. Receive it with thanksgiving. I actually pray cleansing prayers over all kinds of things. That's what I would do. <clears throat> so, And then in houses, uh, I, I think a good thing to do is when you come into a new house or a new office is to, de- to dedicate it to God. Go through it with your family and just pray dedicatory prayers. This place is dedicated to God and those things that honor Him. And anything that dishonors God or Jesus is not allowed to be here and speak rebuke against it.
0: So you do think there's evidence based on those texts of um, some sort of spiritual or demon attachment to objects and their locations, just to be clear?
2: Um, yes, I do. Okay. In high places in the Old Testament, people going, keep going back to those same places. There's something going on there. Now, I think
1: Patrick's actually asking this because he's concerned about Kansas
2: City right now. Oh, well, my son lives in Kansas City, so I can say the south side of Kansas City is clean. The north side where you're going, I'm not so sure, bro. I'm not so sure. I,
0: I mean, we, we don't have time to get into relics and stuff, but you do have that interesting text in Acts 19.12 that with Paul, mm-hmm. even the handkerchiefs and apron, aprons that had touched his skin uh, were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's an interesting text. And a lot of commentators I've been working on Acts don't know what to do with that. I think the point in Acts is that Paul's miracles are so powerful that even the objects that have touched his skin are healing people. I think this is a true statement from Luke. Some people say, oh no, this is what they thought was happening. Um, I tend to interpret it more. No, Paul is in the city of magic in Ephesus at this point, And he's showing his quote, unquote, magic is more powerful than theirs. Um, but what do you do with that going forward in terms of like relics? Because we have not church history, and I'm, I don't have an answer to this, we have not church history, like you, you touching the bones of saints or their aprons or whatever it is. Is there anything? How do we think through that? Todd or Gary, I'm asking you the question because I, I obviously uh, react towards something like that. And I, I think there's some wrong there, but we do have a text like Acts nineteen twelve. So just any thoughts on that?
1: Well, from a church history standpoint, we, we, we don't have a lot of really positive uh, connotations with such because the, 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 yeah. the use of relics was so horrifically abused. And, and any evidence or, or any testimony of miracles that attended the, the, those relics is, is spotty at best
2: and, and very unreliable. Um, Gary, well, I'm with you. Uh, this is a, a unique example, and to try to build a practice out of something that's completely unique in scriptures strikes me as backward. Yeah, I do believe that could happen, but we all know the snake oil evangelists that will sell you a handkerchief that they blessed for forty eight dollars and ninety three cents, kind of thing. Yeah.
0: We um, also sell those at Western Seminary if you want. Oh, do them. we?
2: Yeah, I <laughs> oh, see. With Western Seminary imprints on them, yeah.
0: With your face on them. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah. Now, I, the relic, uh, relics are just not a part of Christian practice, in my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well— Or uh, shouldn't be. They are a part of many Christian practices, to clarify.
0: We have gone from canonical exegesis to uh, immutability— to uh, weddings, to schooling, to necromancy. And I think we've covered a lot of good things, but we've got to end. So thanks so much for coming on, Gary. And we hope this has been helpful for people. We're sorry that this hasn't come earlier, but uh, yeah, this is the time when we could get to it. So I hope you enjoyed this and hopefully we'll do another Q&A later on. Thanks for listening to Food Trucks in Babylon. The music you hear is provided by our friends at Humble Beast Records. If you like the show, please leave us a review and feel free to subscribe. To learn more about Western Seminary, visit us at westernseminary.edu.